This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, early birds. Oh, yeah. This is, you know, when people come to the early service on this Sunday, they really want to meet with God. So I'm so glad that you are here. And we, uh, we have a great journey to be on this morning, so I want to welcome you to that. Um, if you would take your program out of your program, get out your Start Here card, you're going to need that. And get out of it the teaching notes, you're going to need that. I want to say um, a special welcome uh, to those of you who are here for the first time. And um, it's not by accident that you are here. Uh, you are here to connect with God. He's here to meet with you. And uh, I have prayed fervently uh, about this service and for all of us this morning. So, welcome to the next segment in this journey through the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. It's called One Week to Live. And uh, in many churches, uh, this is called Holy Week. And the reason it's called Holy Week is because um, the events of the last week of Jesus' life are the are form the core of the Christian faith, and they form the core of history. Actually, not just the Christian faith, and so in many churches it's called Holy Week um, because it's so important. So we want to welcome you along on that journey, and I want to remind you of what Kevin just said that uh, the basic purpose that we're going through this is so that you and I would get to know Jesus better. Because I'm convinced the more that you and I know Jesus, the more we will love Him. And the more that we love Him, the more natural it will be for us to love the Father and the Spirit as well. So I want to welcome you along on that journey. Today we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is um, uh, a very interesting place. Last, um, the last two Sundays we've looked at two contrasting events. I mean, we started out the first Sunday in this series with Jesus' grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem. It was a raucous event. It was a great celebration. Tens of thousands of people, not just a few hundred, tens of thousands of people, maybe as many as a hundred thousand people were in that procession. I you to think with me for just a minute because we have a tendency to look back in history and think of things as kind of being small and and whatever else, but, but things today are big and huge. If 100,000 people gathered for a parade in San Francisco, you think it might make the, the paper? Of course it would. It would be huge. Well, it was huge. Raucous celebration. Then last week we talked about the Last Supper. And it started out as a celebration of the, of the independence of the Israel, the nation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And it was a celebration. It was a celebratory meal. But in that meal, uh, it, it turned somber. Because in the middle of the celebration, Jesus said to them, One of you is going to betray me tonight. Not, not someday, tonight. And then he went on to further say, all of you are going to desert me tonight. I'm going to be arrested 
tonight. It was it was quiet, and it was somber. And uh, well, you couldn't help but think in just a few days how things have changed. And uh, today we're going to take the next step in that journey in terms of what happened right after the Passover uh, meal. Now, I'm going to give you some facts, some historical facts. We're going to learn some lessons as we walk along. And at the very end, there's going to be a wonderful opportunity and challenge given to us in a story. So let's jump into this. And uh, we have five different scenes from Scripture. So let's go to scene number one right up here. At the end of the Passover meal, the Bible says, Then they sang a hymn and went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. You ever wonder what that hymn was? Well, little historical research tells us what the actual hymn was. In Jesus' day, it was very typical for the Jewish family to end the Passover meal by singing through a portion of their national hymn book, which you actually have if you own a Bible. It's called the book of Psalms. And, and at the end of the Passover meal, they would sing their way through Psalm 115, 116, 117, and 118. Now, for the sake of time, by the way, that's a long song, Okay. But for the sake of time, we're not going to read all that. But there are at least three passages in there that deserve our attention because what's happening the next day? Jesus is going to be arrested and, and tortured and crucified. I want to point our attention to three passages. And the first one is this. Jesus read this. He sang it with, with his apostles. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Look at this. Why let the nation say, where is their God? Now this is what I want you to underline. Our God is in the heavens and, here it is, He does as He what? Wishes. What's the prayer that Jesus is getting ready to pray? that virtually everyone has heard, he was going to pray, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't it amazing how he sings this hymn, which, which reminds him of how important it is for him to be subject to the sovereignty of the will of his Father. Second. Another passage that's lifted out of what they sang. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord did this for me. I will have no fear. Now here's what you underline. What can mere people do to me? You think that would be an important message for Jesus to remember on the way to the cross? Right. These people, I'm going to give them the power to kill my physical body, but they cannot touch who I am. They cannot touch what I have come to do. They cannot touch where I will eventually be. They cannot touch my identity. They cannot in any way hinder the salvation that I am bringing to the entire world. I will not be afraid because what can mere people do to me? 
huge message for Jesus. Now take a look at this last one because virtually everyone has heard this passage of Scripture but probably don't know it in this context. The stone the builders has rejected has now become the cornerstone. Jesus knew that that very verse was written about him. He was the stone that the builders rejected. In fact, earlier in his ministry, Jesus quotes this passage about himself. He said, I came, you looked at me and you said, we don't like that rock. In fact, he he talks of himself as being a stone of stumbling to some. Why? Because he didn't fit the religious aristocracy of the day. Because he came as a common, ordinary person. Because he appeared not on a big white horse, but riding into Jerusalem on a colt of a donkey. Because he wore clothes just like everybody else wore. Because he carried himself like everyone else except without sin. He didn't hold himself above the people. He didn't speak down to people. He never condescended to people. He was on their level. He loved them just as they were. And he presented himself as another human being, though he was God in human flesh. And they looked at that, at that stone and they said, we don't like that stone. They rejected the stone. And you know what, God, what did God do with the stone? God said, I'm making that stone most important one in history. Why? Because that's my son. Now look at the rest of it. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. Whoa, look at this. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, if you've hung around church for any length of time at all, you've heard that verse. You may even have sung that song, but you had no idea that that verse was actually written about the day that Jesus would die. And it was written for him. This is the day. This 24 hours of agony and suffering and trial and eventual death. This is the day the Lord has made. Wow. And Jesus said, and he sang it, I will rejoice and be glad in it. I was reading through that. My mind immediately jumped to the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says of Jesus that we should put our eyes on Jesus, the one who begins our faith and the one who carries it on to completion because it was the joy that was set before him that empowered him to endure the cross. You know, as I got done with that in my preparation, I said, you know, if Jesus could rejoice in the day of his crucifixion, I can rejoice in any day. Are you on board with that? That's right. No matter what we face, we can know that if Jesus could rejoice in the day of his crucifixion, then whatever comes our way today, there's a way to find joy in it. And that's not even one of our lessons, all right? It's just up there, all right? But, but let's do learn a lesson, okay? And here's the lesson. Knowing God's Word prepares, strengthens, and stabilizes us for the ups and downs of life. You know, when Jesus was singing, He was actually singing the, the words that came straight from God's Word. And it's so important. We're going to come back and revisit this lesson in a little bit different form 
under lesson three. But I want you to know right now, one of the reasons why we as a church get you tied into God's Word, and one of the reasons why we encourage you to read God's Word every day, and one of the reasons why when we stand up here and preach, we speak from God's Word, and we go to multiple passages of Scripture every Sunday morning, and why our life groups are built around studying God's Word in and, and, and multiple passages is because knowing God's Word. We want you to know it. Knowing God's Word is, becomes that rock in your life that, that will strengthen you and fortify you for the ups and downs you're going to receive in life. If it was good enough for Jesus, guess what? It's good enough for us. Let's go to scene two. On the way, Jesus told them tonight, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, I will smite the shepherd, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Now, it might not jump off the page at you, but there was something in this passage that I had just flat out missed. This is, this is a quotation from the Old Testament, and Jesus is appropriating it to himself because it was written as a prophecy about him. But in the, it says, for the scriptures say, what's the very next word? Are you sure? What's the very next word? I. I want you to circle that and underline it. There's a huge principle involved here. You see, from the outside, it was going to look like the Jewish leaders and the Roman government were going to strike the shepherd. But in the passage of Scripture, who is it that says, I will strike the shepherd? Who wrote that? God. I missed that somehow. You know why that's important? Because the Bible clearly says that when Jesus died, he died as a sacrifice for our sins. It's important that you and I know that it was God himself who offered that sacrifice. It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It was God from heaven who was orchestrating the events And God himself said, I will strike the shepherd. In the language of the Old Testament, God wanted us to know that this would be a free will offering. His hand would never be forced. This is something that he would choose to do, no matter how tough it would be for him, no matter how painful it would be for him or his son that God was doing this because it was his will and determination to do it. There's the second thing in there that's easy. The, The apostles missed it for sure. What did Jesus say at the very end? I will go ahead of you to where? Galilee. I want you to circle and underline Galilee. You know how I know that the apostles missed it? They never went. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why would Jesus be in the grave three days? Well, now it's easy to say, well, it was prophesied he would be. But why did God prophesy that he would be in the grave for three days? 
Wouldn't it have been just as dramatic if they killed him on Friday afternoon or by Friday evening he was back again? That would get some attention, don't you think? Yeah. Why three days? Look, I, I can't totally jump into the mind of God, but I can at least hazard a guess. Because Jesus knew that the city of Jerusalem was not a safe place for his followers. The same people who came after him and crucified him were going to come after his followers, and Jesus knew that. So he said, get out of Dodge. Okay? Go to Galilee. How long does it take to get to Galilee? About three days' journey. You understand? Jesus, in fact, in another passage, we know that Jesus told them the specific mountain that he would meet them on. So his intention for them and his plan for them was that from the moment he was crucified, when they knew he had died, that they would gather together and they would head off and they would take three days and they would go to Galilee and they wouldn't just go to Nazareth or Capernaum, which would be places the religious leaders would look for them, that they would go to a remote mountain in Galilee. Instead, what did they do? They went right back to the room where they had celebrated communion, where they had celebrated the Passover, because that room probably belonged to a follower of Jesus, a friend of of Jesus. And they got in the room, and you know what? They locked the doors, and they stood in there shivering for fear every time someone knocked on the door. You know how we know the doors were locked? Because when Jesus appeared to them, he had to go through the wall. Now, he did it miraculously, But they were, you know, there's a lesson here. Are you ready for it? Here it is. God's plan is always better. It might have seemed more natural for them to stay in Jerusalem, to to keep a low profile, to get up in that second story room and lock the doors where sort of no one would know where they are and have secret messages going in and out and and, and hoping that eventually the political climate would sort of settle down and they could sort of just ease back into civilian life. And Jesus said, no, i got a way better plan for you. God's plan is always better. I don't know what you're wrestling with. But you know, most of us, if we took the time, and I want to encourage you to think about it for the next few minutes, you could write on the paper something you're wrestling with right now. And this is God's way, but this is the way you like it. Or this is the way you're familiar. Or, or this is the way it's convenient for you. Or this is your habit. Talking truth here? Yeah. Here's the lesson. God's way, God's plan, always better. Let's go to scene three. Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And we're going to pull over to the side of the road right there. Gethsemane literally means valley of of olives or olive oil press. Okay? Um, You can go to Israel today. In fact, explain a little bit about the geography. If you were to go out the eastern gate of the, of, through the wall that surrounds the city of Jerusalem, the eastern gate was the prominent gate. It was, it was the Jews' favorite gate because the prophecy of the Old Testament was that their king would come riding to them through the eastern gate. Now they sort of missed that he would be on the colt uh, of a donkey, but uh, nevertheless, 
That's the gate that Jesus came in. So if you went out that gate, you would immediately begin to, to descend down the side of the mountain that the city of Jerusalem is built on. It's more like a glorified hill. It's not, it wouldn't be nearly as tall as Sonoma Mountain. It would be maybe half that, that height. But you would begin to descend down the side of that mountain. And in the, at the bottom there was a valley. It was called the Kindron Valley. And at the bottom of the valley there was a, a small stream or brook that went through there called the Kidron Brook. It was easy to cross. You could just step on the rocks and in the right places and it was pretty easy. And once you got across it, you would begin to ascend a mountain. Remember I told you a couple weeks ago that Jerusalem was built on a small mountain surrounded by larger mountains. One of those mountains, the mountain on the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives. So you would begin to ascend up the side of the Mount of Olives, and somewhere on the slope of the Mount of Olives was this garden grove, this olive grove called Gethsemane. Probably it was a grove of olive trees that belonged to someone who had become a follower of Jesus, and he had made it available to Jesus and his disciples to go and meet there and pray there, do whatever they wanted in the peace of that olive grove. Now, if you go there today, you can visit the Garden of Gethsemane. I don't want to dash anybody's hopes, but the truth is those aren't the same trees, all right? Uh, maybe in the same location, probably is in the same location, but uh, the Roman general Titus in 70 AD, when he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and broke down its walls and burned the city, he also cut down every tree around the city of Jerusalem. So we know it can't be the same trees, but those same olive trees that are there today have been considered tax-exempt since the 6th century AD, and they are that old because that's where the Christians came and said, this is the place where Jesus prayed. So uh, when you see pictures, you can pull up Garden of Gethsemane and you can Google it and you can see those, those trees and there's the rock of denial in there where Peter denied Christ and so forth. It's a great place to go, a very touching place to go, but that's where Jesus went. Now, having said all of that, he said, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and he became anguished and distressed. And he told them, now look at this, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And he went about a stone's throw away and bowed his face to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. And now here's what I want you to see that he prayed. Okay, Let's circle the first word, Abba. Okay, We're going to come back to that word. Abba, Father, he cried out. Next thing I want you to underline is everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. There's a couple of things I want to say to you in there. Abba, Father. Okay, You have to understand Jesus' relationship with God. We don't usually use the word Abba, but let me give you the English equivalent. It means Dad. Okay? If a small child says it, it means daddy. If, if a grown child says it, a teenager or grown child says it, it means dad. You know, one of the differences between Jesus and Peter was Peter had a more formal relationship with, with the Heavenly Father. Okay? And no offense, Jesus taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven. And that's often called the Our Father prayer. But, but 
could I tell you this is not, Jesus didn't pray our Father here. You know what he prayed? Dad, I got a big request. And what's the request? If it's possible. But he actually doesn't say just if it's possible. What does he point out to his dad? All things are what? Possible for you. Get this clearly in mind. Jesus was not out of options. There were other options. And he recognized right up front that everything is possible for God. He said, Dad, I know all things are possible for you. So here's my request. What is it? Take this cup away from me. What cup? The cup of suffering and death and torture. Take this cup from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Now, Jesus prayed that prayer for an hour. I don't think he just said the same thing over and over and over and over again. In fact, Jesus did something that a a bunch of us did in this very auditorium on Friday night when we gathered for what ended up to be two and a half hours of praying to God and listening. Jesus prayed and listened. Pretty cool stuff. Because he actually got an answer from God. Let's go to scene four. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. And he said to Peter, wouldn't you love to be Peter? It's like, bummer of a birthmark. Where did I get the target on my chest? I'm not the only one sleeping. You know, everybody else was just as asleep. And yet Jesus says to Peter, well, there's a reason why he said it to Peter. Uh, Two reasons. Number one, it was Peter who stood up in front of everybody and said, Lord, I am willing to die with you. Now he can't even stay awake for it. There's a little problem there. Do you see it? You know the difference between Jesus and Peter? Jesus knows God's Word. Peter only knows a little bit of God's Word. Jesus is all prayed up and Peter's just slept up. Jesus is ready for what's coming and Peter's completely unprepared. Jesus knew that. So he said, hey, Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray. Why? So you won't give in to temptation. Jesus knows temptation is just around the corner. The, 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 the cohort of Roman soldiers is coming and they're going to arrest Jesus. And, and, and they're going to look at Peter and say, are you one of his? And what's Peter going to say? Nope, not me. Peter gave in because he wasn't prepared. And Jesus knew it was coming. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Friends, I want you to know something. I didn't actually put it in your notes like this, but I want you to know something. The the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Hear me clearly. Unless you get in God's word, unless you feed your spirit on God's word, unless you pray to God, your flesh will win every time. You can't control your flesh outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because your spirit wants to, but your flesh can't get it done. Strength and stability come from knowing God, being tight with Him through prayer, 
and knowing his word. I told you we'd come back and revisit that in lesson three. There it is. Strength and stability don't come from personal discipline, and they don't come from being strong and being a strong person. Peter was a pretty strong guy, and he was a pretty determined guy. But the truth was, he was no match for his own flesh when he, when he met temptation. Let's go to scene number five. Then Jesus left them a second time, and an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. I want you to circle that word, angel. He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like drops of blood. My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you see a difference in that prayer? The first time he said, please take the cup away. You know why this time he recognizes that it's not possible? Because he prayed and listened during that first hour. And God gave the answer during that first hour. So now he says, if it's not possible to take this cup away, I'll drink it. This is a prayer of surrender. This is not a request to get out of it. This is a prayer of surrender. And he recognizes that it's your will. And when he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open, and they didn't know what to say. Of course they didn't know what to say. Okay? So he went away to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And then he came to his disciples and said, Go ahead, have a sleep, get your rest. I wonder if Jesus said that on daylight savings time, right? <laughs> it's just kind of interesting we would be on that this morning. Here you go. All right, back to the text. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let us be going. My betrayer is here. I want you to see something in this, and it's, it's just a freebie lesson. You know, once Jesus was prayed up, and once he knew what God's will was, It's like he came back resolute. All right, let's do it. Let's roll. Even though his closest friends were all asleep, and they they, they were certainly no help, and and in just a few minutes they're going to vanish and be gone, this is going to be a road that Jesus has to walk by himself. I think it's fitting because Jesus was going to have to walk this by himself. It's sort of interesting. He also had to pray by himself. Did you notice that? But he was all prayed up. So up, let's go. Let's get this thing done. You know, as we close, I, I have a story I want to tell. And it's not this story. It's, it's a picture of this story. And one of the great things about God is oftentimes God takes spiritual truths and he gives us pictures of them in history or nature. And so I want to go back to a time almost 2,000 years prior to Jesus' coming. So it would be 4,000 years ago now. And I want us to see a picture, and I want to be able to tell us that story. But, but as I tell this story, I want you to know that it is especially a story that's written for those of us who have not yet made the decision to follow Christ. We might be religious. We might be spiritual. We might even be regular church attenders but we've never stepped from this side of the line to that side of the line, and we've never entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus. You will remember if you were here last week that when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant confirmed in my blood. I want to remind all of us that a covenant 
is not binding until it's signed by both parties. You don't sign the covenant by coming to church. You don't sign the covenant by being religious. You don't even sign the covenant by being spiritual. You don't sign the covenant by doing more good deeds than bad deeds. You sign the covenant by saying to God, This day I become a follower of Jesus. I accept what He did on my behalf. Does that make sense to everybody? You've got to know that. Now let's go back and pick up the story. The principal character in the story is a guy by the name of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham one day and says, Abraham, I have a request for you. I want you to take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, the son that you love, and I want you to take him to a mountain some distance away. I will show you the mountain. I want you to walk up the mountain with him. And on top of that mountain, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me. Everything about that must have seemed confusing to Abraham. Now, friends, God had no intention ever of allowing Abraham to go all the way through with that. We'll know that as we get into the story. Why did he ask him to do it? He asked him to do it for you and for me. Because he wanted to teach us. He wanted to give us a living demonstration of what God himself was going to do. So he said, I want you to take your son Isaac. What was the next phrase? Your only son Isaac. Does that remind you of any terminology? For God gave his only begotten son. And now listen to this. Your only son Isaac, the one you love. What did, Jesus, what did God say at Jesus' baptism? This is my beloved Son. And he said, I want you to take him to a mountain. I'll show you the mountain. And I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. If you go in the Old Testament, one of the burnt offerings was a sin offering. I won't, I won't get into all of that, but I just want you to know that. Here's another thing that must have been confusing to Abraham. Um, he probably wasn't as off-put by sacrificing his son as you and I would because Abraham lived in the midst of pagans who crucified, not crucified, but who sacrificed their children all the time. So we look at it and go, that's horrific. Well, that was actually a relatively normal thing for the people around Abraham. But what was sort of shocking was, why would God send him to a mountain that we're going to find out later was three days away? Abraham's used to offering burnt offerings to God right where he lived. Something wrong with this one? Why can't I do it on my own altar? I don't know the conversation that took place, but you know what I do know? That he gets up early the next morning, he gets Isaac. By the way, he doesn't tell Isaac yet. He gets, he gets Isaac, and uh, that might have been a good thing because we know from the story that Isaac was somewhere between 17 and 25 years of age. So he gets Isaac up the next morning. He gets up a couple of his household employees and they pack up the, 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 the pack mules because he doesn't know how long they're going to be gone. So they take food, they take tents, and they take all the stuff that they're going to need to sleep and stuff along the way. And they head off. And on the third day, they came to the place and God says to Abraham, that's the mountain. Why that mountain? Because God was drawing a picture for you and me. That mountain 
in the land of Moriah is the exact mountain that the temple would be built on years later. It's the same mountain the city of Jerusalem was built on. It was on the slopes of that mountain that Jesus would be crucified. That's why that mountain. So Abraham says to his household employees, okay, you guys stay with the with the, with the pack animals and, and the supplies, and Isaac and I are going to head up the mountain. So he reaches in, and he takes the wood that they've got to, to uh, light the fire, and he says, here, son, turn around. He said, why don't you carry the wood up? Why him? Because he was 17 to 25, and Abraham was 117 to 125. Got it? He says, you carry the wood, and Abraham says, I've got the knife and the fire. And they head on up the mountain. There's a serious conversation that takes place between father and son. Isaac says, hey, Dad, you got the knife and the fire. I got the wood. But where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Abraham says, I got to talk to you about that. And he started the conversation by saying, God's going to supply. Isaac said, what do you mean by that? Now we know this from reading in the the book of Hebrews, that Abraham says to Isaac, Isaac, son, you've got to trust me in this. Actually, you don't have to trust me. What you really need to do is trust God. Because here's what's going to happen. We get up there, God says that you're to be the sacrifice. But son, I want you to understand God's not going to leave you there. He's going to raise you from the dead. Dad, how do you know that? Would you want to ask that question? Yeah. Son, here's how I know. Because the same God who told me to offer you as a burnt offering also told me that through you he was going to make, he was going to make a great nation and he was going to give you lots of kids and lots of descendants. And I don't know how God's going to put all that together, but I know he will. So I want you to know, just as surely as I'm standing here, that when I offer you on that altar, that in some way God's going to resurrect you from the dead and you and I are going to walk off this mountain together. Does that seem outlandish? Yeah. Do you see the picture? The Father was going to offer the son, but the son was going to be raised from the dead. I want you to get this. They get up to the top of the mountain. They build the the altar. they They put the wood on the altar. And Abraham says, Okay, Isaac, time to climb up and lay down. You know what's amazing? He did. You and I know that if a 17 to 25 year old person doesn't want to do that, that's not going to happen, right? Especially from a 117 to 125 year old man. You know, that's an important part of the story. It's a really important part of the story. Because Isaac gets up 
and lays down. Abraham takes the knife and he raises it to slit Isaac's throat because that's how you offered a sacrifice. And the angel stops him and says, no, no, no. It was never my intent that you would do this. I'm just drawing a picture. Now, transport yourself 2,000 years later. What was the passage where Jesus quoted from the Old Testament where it said, I will strike the shepherd. Who was it that sacrificed Jesus? The Father. You see, God didn't require of Abraham what he required of himself. You know, there are three things that have to take place in this salvation story. You have to have a willing father. Abraham could have said, nope, I'm not in on that. I've done enough. But Abraham was a willing father. By now you know there had to be a willing son because Isaac could have opted out at any point and said, you know, Dad, you might be in on this deal, but I'm not. It took a willing father. It took a willing son. But here's where you and I get to jump in the story. Because the story up there on the top of the mountain is actually not finished. And you and I know that because 2,000 years later, there was a willing father who said, I will strike the shepherd, my son. There was a willing son who said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. But there has to be a third party who's willing. And that's you and me. Because there could be a willing father and there could be a willing son. But if nobody chooses to accept it, it's nothing. Now here's where I want to talk to you and me as we wrap this up and bring it to a close. As a pastor, sometimes even from people who regularly come to church, and even from people who regularly come to this church, I hear people say, I know I should become a Christian. I know I should make that choice. I know I should do this or I should do that. I know. I just, I don't know. I just don't feel like the time is right. I, 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 I'm too busy. I, I... I don't know how to state it any clearer. God said, I'm willing. I struck my own son. I took his life for you. How can you look at me and say, so? I got bigger fish to fry today. I have more important things to do. I just haven't felt like the time is right. I just never got around to it. I know I went to church and it sounded good, but I looked at all those people and I thought, you know, that might be for them. I'm just comfortable going to church. I want you to know today that God will never sit idly by having killed His only Son on your behalf and accept the answer, so. Or I'm too busy or I never got around to it. So this morning, that's our challenge. That's our opportunity. I want you to know I've prayed for every single one of us that not one of us would leave this place today and not having stepped over that line.
and said, this is the day I sign my covenant with God. So, how do you do that? Well, you start by taking your Start Here card. The very first way we can apply this message is, I'm choosing to become a follower of Christ today. I'm signing my covenant with Him. I'm offering my life to Him. I'm accepting Him as my Lord and Savior. And, and I pray to God that He's talking to you if you haven't done that. You check that circle and uh, we will get with you this week and we will absolutely come alongside you and make sure that you understand how that works and we'll give you uh, steps along the way. Number two, I'm interested in being baptized here April the 1st. You know why that's such a big deal? I didn't get into it this morning, but Jesus not only called this the cup of suffering, he called it the baptism of suffering. Because when you're baptized, it means that you're totally overwhelmed or covered. As in baptism, when we put people down on the water, the water completely covers them. The baptism of suffering was Jesus being engulfed by suffering. And you know what he says to us? I don't give you the baptism of suffering. I give you the baptism of water. Is that a break? That's a big break, all right? And he says, in the baptism of water... You join me in my death, burial, and resurrection. You do it symbolically. I did it for real. So on April the 1st, we have a baptism service scheduled right here. If you've never been baptized in water as an adult, choosing to join Jesus, you should not allow April the 1st to pass without doing that. Don't wait for the feeling. Do it now. It's Christ who invites you to that. And number three, I would trust God this week with an area of struggle in my life. Now we're going to take communion. And in communion this morning, um, I'm not going to give a long, involved explanation. In just a couple of minutes, we'll be passing trays uh, through the audience. The trays have the symbols of communion on them. Invite you to participate. If you're ready to honor Christ, and and if you're not ready for that, just pass the tray to your neighbor. But at least remember that this 24 hours of Jesus' life was the cup of suffering, it was the baptism of suffering, and he invites us to remember it through communion. Let's pray. Lord, right here, right now, we honor you. We remember that once you knew this was the absolute will of your Father, you climbed up on the altar knowing that you would be raised. We honor you for that. We take this in your name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.